welcome to the Grok Science Show. I am your host, Chenan Zhang. For those of us who grew up in the 80s, video games were a huge part of our lives. I was never allowed to have my own video game console, but I remember going to my best friend's house after school to squeeze in a few levels of Super Mario before going home to do homework. Later on, sleepover parties at friends' who were lucky enough to own Nintendo 64 Mario Kart, were highly anticipated. Today, kids and adults all across the world are immersed in the world of video games. However, most of us are not aware of the epic battle waged behind the scenes in the early 1990s between Nintendo and Sega, which paved the way for the video game industry as we know it today. Today's interview is with Blake Harris, whose first book recently came out on the vicious corporate war that played out behind the scenes of the video game industry. The book, called Console Wars, describes the gripping tale following protagonist Tom Kalinske, a former executive of Mattel, the company most famous for Barbie. Kalinske, who joined Sega without any background in video games, fought a scrappy uphill battle against the video game giant Nintendo and helped usher in a $60 billion industry in this business thriller, which is also currently in development as a feature film from Sony to be directed by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, who are well known for their roles in movies like Superbad, Knocked Up, and This is the End. Stay tuned for my interview with Blake Harris on his first book, Console Wars. No one here wants to fight me like you do. Why don't you get started and just tell us a little bit about your personal experience with video games and how you got interested in the topic for this book. Sure. So my uh, entry into this world of the 16-bit battle between Sega and Nintendo has been as unexpected as it's been delightful, honestly. Growing up, I played Sega and Nintendo games all the time because that was my entire social life, and I think the entire social life of a lot of people who grew up in the 80s and 90s, and yeah. it wasn't about being a gamer back then. I don't even know if it's a label existed. It was just what you did. It was a social lubricant for the era. So it was a big part of my life back then, but then I think also, like a lot of people, um, as I grew up and went to college and got busy with pushing papers at a job and whatnot, I, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of lost touch with video games, not out of any lack of interest, but just sort of a lack of time and a few years ago, my brother got me a Sega Genesis for my birthday in oh. December of 2010. And this is what we had when we were kids. And, you know, just holding that controller in my hand alone brought back all sorts of visceral, nostalgic memories. And uh, it just really inspired me to uh, learn more because I was young at the time. And I figured there must have been all sorts of crazy stuff going on behind the scenes that led to the actual games and products and commercials that I saw in my home. My first step before I even put out to write console words was I, I just really wanted to read console words. I wanted to know all about that. My favorite books are always those business books um, that take you behind the scenes, whether it's Disney Wars, Smartest Guys in the Room, or even the great job biography where you just sort of get to know the people and see where these ideas come from and how, to, how, how they were executed. But to my great surprise, 
I went to uh, this giant Barnes and Noble in Manhattan, and I was looking for the video game history section. <laughs> and uh, I was looking at the film history section and the music history section, and there was no such section. And I asked the woman at the information desk uh, where it was, and she snickered and uh, <laughs> said that they didn't have that. Uh-huh. And, and not only did they not have it, they didn't have a single book in the entire store on video games. And I, I knew video games were a big business, but I, I would quickly find out that it was bigger than the film industry and the music industry. Yeah. Um, it's a $60 billion year industry. So that was kind of shocking to me. Uh, and and there, there are a few video game books out there. Um, and, and some of them were really helpful to me early on, and some of them are very strong. Um, but there wasn't really anyone that was written for an audience of gamers and non-gamers alike that did focus on the characters and a lot of the behind-the-scenes business, other than one book about Nintendo from the early 90s. But that book ends with the promise of the World Wide Web and uh, <laughs> the buzzword of multimedia. It's very timely. <laughs> yeah. So that was sort of my entry into the story, just a curiosity piece based on a, a cultural, a culturally significant experience that dominated a lot of years of my childhood. And, uh, yeah. and then it was really clinched when I first spoke with Tom Kalinske, who's the primary uh, protagonist of the book. And I was just blown away by this guy, by his experiences at Sega, and, and even his experiences before getting to Sega. Yeah. So what I really enjoyed about this book is, I mean, at first I was a little intimidated because I personally don't know that much about video games. I actually started playing a little bit of NHL hockey recently with my husband, but... That's why, uh, that was the game I played when my brother got me the system that got me into all this. <laughs> the NHL funny. 94 games. Yeah. Yeah. So he and his brother played back in the 90s, and he also, sort of like what you were describing stopped playing, you know, growing up. The last time he played was the NHL 94, and then he just picked up NHL 2012. It was, it was on sale. And it was just, he was amazed at the progress in technology. I mean, I, I enjoy it too. So back to the book. So I really enjoyed it because I was, I was scared there was going to be all this tech jargon and video game stuff I didn't know about, but it, it read like a novel and it was really gripping. And on the on the book cover, it said that it was based on like hundreds of interviews with people that were involved with this, the the kind of conflict that was described in the book. So can you talk about what your goal was with this? Like this is obviously your intention. It, it makes for a much better read. So how did you manage to turn these interviews into such an engaging tale? Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much. I mean, that really from the very start was my goal. Um, in my head, you know, I said to myself, I want to write a book that's as rich and uh, dense with history as Disney World that reads like Da Vinci Code. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and my ideal, re- I, my ideal reader, um, that I would think about throughout whenever I was stuck or didn't know how to frame a chapter was my grandmother, who mm-hmm. knows nothing about video games other than that I desperately wanted them about 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, but I thought if I can write a story that she could appreciate and where she'll learn some things about video games, but it's really just about the characters and these ideas. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then I've done my job. And so my approach was, uh, you know, I was mentioning that things were really crystallized for me when I spoke with Tom Kalinske. Mm-hmm. Who, you know, prior to my interview with him, I knew that he was the Big of America CEO and president from 1990-96, which were the years that Sega went from 5% of the market up to 55% and then uh, started to decline. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like the most interesting time in this industry, uh, this David and Goliath story. But before we even got to talking about this kind of Sega, I was just blown away by his experiences before then. And, and I quickly realized that other than my parents, this man was the adult that single-handedly most shaped my childhood. Yeah. <laughs> um, whether he, you know, straight out of college, he worked at the advertising agency J. Walter Thompson and uh, helped develop the Flintstones Kids' Chewable Vitamin. 
Yeah. And then after that, we're at uh, Mattel, where he helps resurrect uh, the Barbie doll industry, uh, the Barbie doll line. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, he was asked to do for boys with Barbie for girls, and he helped develop uh, He-Man Masters of the Universe. And then after that, was at Matchbox, and I uh, did the toy cars, and I was thinking every step of the way, these were things that were like cultural touchstones for my childhood. And um, he was so responsible for, for how I spent my time and for just the growth of my imagination. So that really helped he began to see the story as the way that I tried to write it, where it was a, it was a character-driven story just about this really impressive man and, and a bunch of other really impressive men and women who were pioneers that took us from NHL 94 to uh, NHL 2012 and yeah. all those advancements and the way that this industry has become so big and, and so much more than back in the day. It was more of like a childish hobby, and, and mm-hmm. it made money, but, but now it's a big business, and it is bigger than film and music. Yes. And so um, after speaking with Tom, I knew that this was a story that I really wanted to invest a significant portion of my time into. And uh, I, I began reaching out to uh, other people who had worked under Tom and who had worked as his competitors at Nintendo. And uh, my, my initial resource was LinkedIn, which I had previously ah. been making fun of as, as Facebook for, for working. But uh, it was so helpful. But, you know, it, it, I could find in years that people were at these companies and about only 10% of them would respond to me, but that's 10% more than I would have gotten otherwise. And that yeah. helped me establish a network and, and kind of just get, get a sense of what the story was. You know, I started to outline it and to do it in a way that tried to make it a gripping read and, and, and that read like a novel um, while also, you know, staying completely authentic to the story. And and I think a lot of it has to do with the old writing adage, the old writing adage of, Show versus tell. Um, you know, I could I could mm-hmm. tell you that Sega was a fun environment, but I really wanted to bring it to life and put you in the room with these people so you can see it's fun. And, and I don't need to tell you that, or you can decide not fun, but at least you'll know what it was actually like to be there. Yeah, with such fierce competition that occurred, were the people that you talked to generally willing to talk quite openly about the things that happened, or are there some still level of secrecy? Great question. I think it. Anytime you speak to somebody the first time, they're going to be somewhat guarded, yeah. especially when they don't know you. And, and I didn't have a, a whole host of book credits to, to uh, wow them with. Uh, this was my first book. So uh, very much credit to these people for even just taking a chance on me to even answer my call the first time. Um, and, and that was sort of where the fact that the process took three years mm-hmm. worked out severely to my advantage. Uh, you know, it felt long to me, and I probably would have wanted to fast forward if I could, but in right. the end, it was so helpful to get to the point where I could even just shoot these people a question that was about a heavy emotional topic and, you know, grown close enough that I wouldn't have minded doing that because I, I knew them. But but at first, my big challenge was really in speaking to people from Nintendo. They, uh, as you saw in the book, they're a unique company. Um, they're very secretive. Mm-hmm. They um, are very controlling, which sounds like a negative thing, but it isn't. Completely, they're very much like Apple, where they like to control every aspect of the user experience, which is, for some people, frustrating, and for some people, um, they love it. But their intention is they want to give you the best possible experience and make sure you get your money's worth. So this is why they do all these things. And so that also kind of made the story delightful for me because both sides thought that the other was the villain of the story, and that was fun. But uh, it was really hard to uh, really crack that Nintendo nut. By the by, last summer they. Uh, really opened up, and I was able to speak with a lot of the current and former employees. So it would have certainly been better to do that earlier on, but uh, I'm certainly also not going to complain that 
Also, this book just came out yesterday, I believe. You're expecting uh, a movie to be made or being made? Can you talk a little bit yeah. about what's happening? Yeah. Absolutely. So the research and writing of this book was a three-year process. Mm -hmm. And after the first year, um, I put together a book proposal. You know, as I said at the top of the show, my goal really was always to bring this to a mainstream audience, to people who are gamers and non-gamers. And I thought the best way to connect with them on a larger level is a film, and, and to find somebody who's capable of doing that, and, it, you know, high in the sky dream was Seth Rogen, because, yeah. um, you know, he's so talented, and so funny, and has such a, you know, he commands respect from the, the geek community, and also mm -hmm. from anybody who notices the fact that his movies make a ton of money, and that he's just a really smart guy. Yeah. And so, uh, I had met with his company before, never with Seth, but much, much lower uh, people at the company, and I asked my agent if he would mind sending over this 25-page uh, proposal that I had at the time, which would eventually balloon to 90 pages. And, I, and you know, I thought nothing much of it until I heard back that he wanted to meet with me, and I went out to L.A. in January 2012 and met with Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, who was writing, directing, and business partner. And they very graciously gave me over two hours at a time, and we talked about our own personal console experiences and how this story um, just from a cultural standpoint, resonates with so many people that grew up in the 80s and 90s. And then beyond that, there was this uh, social network-like right behind the scenes business story filled with backstabbing and, um, you know, changing alliances and, and you know, the, just the, the idea of uh, executing something. You know, it, the genesis was out for a couple of years before it found any success. Yeah. But it wasn't just a matter of having a technologically superior machine. you got to figure out how to tell that story and sell that story to the world, and uh, that's what Sega did so well. Yeah. So after I, I did, so after I met with Seth and Evan, they agreed to uh, produce a documentary uh, based on the subject for me to direct and uh, do that with my directing partner, Jonah Tulis, and then also to produce a feature film based on the book, and they wanted to write and direct that feature film, and then along the way, not long after, uh, Scott Rudin came on board, to also produce and oversee the production of the film, which is, you know, in addition to just having Seth wasn't already good enough, but mm -hmm. Scott uh, produces some of the best movies that I've seen in the past decade, including The Social Network and Moneyball, oh, whose wow. who books yeah. um, were definitely the two biggest inspirations for me writing my book. So that was sort of a dream team that, uh, that I couldn't have been happier with, and uh, we sold the film rights to the book to Sony Pictures Entertainment. And uh, right now, uh, we're in post-production on the documentary, and Seth and Evan are about to get started writing the script. And uh, so far, so good. And uh, yeah, the book came out earlier this week, and it's been a dream come true for me. It's my golden life, and uh, I I'm so happy to not only be experiencing it, but, but really to shine a light on these industry pioneers that people have never heard of before. Yeah. I, I, I know why nobody has, but there's also... Amazing, and you know, even Tom Clancy with his, his 
great backstory before saying that the first time I spoke to him, I looked online and his Wikipedia page was like two sentences. And, and this guy is like a, a great American visionary uh, who, who did for video games what Steve Jobs did for computers and yeah. also changed the childhood of so many people and continues to this day to work so many hours uh, combining education and technology. So it's been a real honor for me. I looked at the list. I mean, uh, the projects you worked on includes Blackboard, which all, all college students nowadays know yeah. Blackboard. So I was like, oh, wow. Tom, you know, even went on to do other great things. He did help form uh, Blackboard and, and mm -hmm. LeapFrog and then served as the CEO for LeapFrog, which is a premier uh, kids' technological uh, education toy company. And, you know, mm -hmm. everywhere this guy goes, uh, lightning strikes. And that's completely, uh, you know, it, he does it with a great team, but... Um, there's very few who can have that talent. So two more questions. One is that in the book, so it was described that one of the earlier challenges that Sega faced was that Nintendo had basically an iron grip on all the software developers that were making all the hits and that these software developers had exclusive agreements with Nintendo. So nowadays it's a little bit different because with the rise of app stores, it's becoming easier for indie developers to publish video games online and they don't need a distributor, they don't need marketers. So how do you think that will be changing the landscape of video games? So that's a really interesting question. So yes, you know, sort of at the beginning of the era that the book describes, Nintendo, you know, wasn't just uh, kids who were kids who were soldiers in this war and had a two sides, but developers had to choose whether they wanted to develop for Sega or Nintendo because doing both um, was not possible with Nintendo's agreements. And uh, retailers, too, had to make that decision. Mm -hmm. and, and sort of the result, you know, of Sega being able to break into the market and actually not only establish a foothold, but at one point establish a lead was that it really opened it up so that it gave a lot of power back to the developers and they could develop for both systems. And as you described, you know, nowadays in the App Store, you'll see a game that's available on iTunes and it's also available on Google Play and all over the place. Um, and, and I think that sort of the result of that is just, like, I guess the real winner is us, the consumers, yeah. and it's harder for them because uh, I have to admit that I probably spent somewhere between $500,000 a million on Candy Crush. Or <laughs> but I spent, I spent a lot of money playing Candy Crush while writing this book. That was my, uh, how I, I unwound at the end of the day. And so, obviously, I love this product that King made, um, the maker of the game. Yeah. But they, they have other games, and I, I have never, I played them maybe once, but they're not as good. So, it's not like in the past where just because a company has a name and they sort of have a strong distribution network, you're going to keep buying from that company because that's really your only choice or because it kind of keeps getting put in your face. Nowadays, uh, there's, there's a little bit more of a meritocracy when it comes to these games, uh, and, I, and that's great for us. It's not as great for these companies. Yeah. Well, we'll be kept happy at least. <laughs> so, yeah. okay, we have enough time for one more question. So, the Grok Science show that this episode will be airing, so we focus on issues in science and technology, as I said, and one of the challenges in the sciences and technology is getting better representation from women. 
and getting you know girls interested in the sciences and i think it's a similar issue in the video game industry and culture so can you talk about what you think are some of the ways to make video games more appealing or more inclusive for women i would love to talk about that <laughs> i thought about time writing book would you you know is your question more focused on getting people uh females playing video games or more females working at these companies both that's great that would be okay. great if you can mention a little bit of both um, so, so one of the really fun things for me while writing this book was that there were really strong female characters at Sega. Mm-hmm. And this was the early 90s at a time where, even though it wasn't that long ago, I, I feel like a, a lot of women, they would expect that they wouldn't work or that if they did, um, they always had to do their job twice as good to get half the credit. Mm-hmm. And I tried to touch upon that environment to some extent. Um, but for the most part, Sega of America and Nintendo of America were both really great places for women to work. And, and it was nice to sort of show some of the, the heroes or the heroines in that uh, video game world. But, yeah. but for the most part, it is a male-dominated industry. It is hard to get into, but, uh, you know, I've noticed that there's, there's a, a new documentary being made on Kickstarter or raising funding on Kickstarter called uh, Save the Princess that's about women in gaming. Oh, okay. I'll have to check that out. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and I hope that, you know, my book helps at least show people that, there are women involved in the business and, yeah. and show young women that there are women involved and that, I mean, I don't see anything that a man can do that a woman couldn't do in this industry to make it, to make them have a better chance of success than a woman. Yeah. Uh, back in the day, and especially in the era that my book started begins, is uh, the industry is really dominated by Japan mm-hmm. and uh, at the time that they, at least from the employees I spoke to who were, you know, they had a, they didn't feel like they were treated with very much respect from mm-hmm. uh, the parent company in Japan. So, I think as, you know, Microsoft has become more successful, companies like Facebook and Google are really getting more into the, I guess you would call it video game space or mm-hmm. interactive entertainment space. Um, I think that's a great thing for women. And there is so much that can be done in the video game world. It's not just about entertainment, but you can, like, follow LeapFrog's lead and also make it about education or make it about simulation for yes. flying mm-hmm. or other things that you want to do. So, I, you know, I, 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 I see this as a, um, not just, I see this period of between Sega and Nintendo and even the years since mm-hmm. as a positive progression for women in the video game industry. And it's still not where it should be, in my opinion, but mm-hmm. um, I think we're getting there. And I think there's no reason that uh, a young girl or a woman should be discouraged about trying to get a job in that industry. It would be excellent. It's our time, sweet babe. To break on through It's the year to be hated So glad that we made it Cause all the kids in the street Whisper sounds that sweet stars under their feet Well, it's the year to be hated That was an interview with Blake Harris, author of the new book Console Wars, which just came out in May of 2014. We hope you have enjoyed the show. For more episodes or information, go to grox.net and follow us on Facebook or Twitter. See you next week on the Grok Science Show.